This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, some elephants are not growing tusks. Is this evolution to avoid poaching or something a little bit more complicated? I dove into conversation with Robert Pringle, Professor of Ecology, Biodiversity and Conservation at Princeton University. And we got in-depth about why we love elephants, how we came to love these big animals in general, and the science behind evolution. Could a common sleep disorder explain all of the things that go bump in the night? Greg Fish dives into the science behind our paranormal hunches. Sir Christopher Gilbert shares his news about getting married. We talk an awful lot about going to Okinawa and the history of Okinawa, plus some other personal stories about traveling, including an invitation to go to New Zealand with them as well. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Oh, it's just turned out the lamp. Christopher. Yeah. Hey. How are you, buddy? Hello. Oh, I'm good, mate. Good. Yeah, no, like, um, it's dark now. Winter is coming. You know, it's five o'clock and it's pretty much navy blue outside. I wouldn't call it pitch black, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was on, um, on my little balcony next to my washing line, cramped up my knees and my ears because there's no space here, um, drinking an apparel spritz at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night. Now it's 5 p.m. here in the evening, and it's dark, as you just noticed. So um, I'm looking forward to the, to the snow and the snowboarding season. That's what I'm looking forward to. What does winter look like in Tokyo? Does it get super snowy oh deep like gosh. Canada, or is it just like sprinkles of snow here and there? It's so good because Tokyo winters are beautiful because um, every day the, it's a clear blue sky. Every day. It's just, it's just two or three months of clear blue skies, crisp weather, uh, cold but not too cold. You might get a couple of snowy days every couple of years, two or three years, although obviously that's becoming less and less common. If you go west of here, it dumps down snow. You get just mountains and mountains. Like you can drive down the road. They've got highways where there's like 10 or 20 feet of snow above you. Um, Tokyo snows a little bit, but oh, mate, just the weather here is beautiful. It's the best time of year. Really? That's fantastic. Yeah. I like this story. Chris Gilbert, if you don't know, he's a Kiwi who uh, was over in Japan. Then he came to Canada. He was one of the producers here on The Shift. He's back in Tokyo now with some personal news, maybe, that we could share. What do you say? Oh, yeah, you can share it. Yeah, I'm going on holiday. That's the news you're talking about, right? Woohoo! I'm going to Okinawa. You're going to Okinawa. And um, so because of the reason you're going to Okinawa is pretty special, I reached out to my buddy Todd Inafuku. Uh, he's Hawaiian, but his whole family is from Okinawa. He's 100% Okinawan. And uh, so, um, what do you what do you want to do in Okinawa? Should I introduce you to? Should I ask Todd for some inside scoop, or you already know what's going on there? What's the deal? Um, well, Okinawa is actually meant to be my honeymoon uh, because, uh, much like the Japanese princess Mako, uh, who I am getting married. Uh, not as recently as she, but like in a week or so. I was meant to get married um, on the 23rd this past Saturday, but uh, my fiance is currently uh, in between jobs, meaning she has a new job, but she has to change her visa for her new job and it took a little bit longer than expected. And so we've had to delay it by a couple of weeks. So we're having our honeymoon first. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, 
Yeah, I know. Yeah. So uh, we're going to, okay. And you no, know, today is the one year. In fact, about an hour from now will be one year since I touched back down in Tokyo from uh, working on the shift in Vancouver. Hmm. So it's uh, there's a whole lot of things going on at the moment, you know, like cosmic, cosmically with like existential symmetry and stuff. But yeah, so we're going to go to Okinawa this weekend. It'll be our first holiday in God knows how, how long, you know, like well before the pandemic. Um, you know, apart from the utilitarian reason of moving to Japan, it'll be the first time I've caught a plane since I moved to Vancouver, you know, like two years ago. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited. I'm excited to get married the week after it. And I'm excited to, you know, like sit around in a pair of little shorts doing nothing, you know, sipping silly drinks next to a pool for a, for a week. That'd be awesome. Nice. So you're going to be on the show though, right? When you're there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we That's got a uh, for you. congratulations potato chip Gilbert text message from <laughs> D Wayne the cat. the cat is potato chip Gilbert we don't even have we don't even have potato chip Gilbert yet because we, we moved into, into an apartment that doesn't accept potato chips um, but yeah like well first comes the, the, the marriage and then um comes a new apartment and then maybe the potato chip Gilbert cat will come along. But thank you very much for the congratulations. Yep. First comes the honeymoon, then the marriage. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> then the apartment, <laughs> then the cat. Um, yeah. <laughs> are you familiar with the history of Okinawa? Like it's a pretty remarkable place. The uh, Ryuku, Ryukayu uh, yeah. kingdom as a separate country. And then China kind of took over. Then they, they joined up with Japan. Yeah. And um, Todd really tells us stories about as being a Hawaiian-born Okinawan, Japan is sort of where they associate for, yeah. you know, uh, you, where you're from. I'm from Japan. But being Okinawan, he used to always say to me, but I didn't always look like a Japanese person. And when yeah. he learned about the history of Okinawa, he was uh, he found his home. Like, he was like, he went there for the first time. Like, he grew up as an adult and had never been back. And then the first time he went there, he looked around and saw the people, and he went, these are my people. And so it's yeah. an amazing storyline that he has about Okinawa. Remember when I asked you about the cherry blossoms and how beautiful yeah. they were? This is Todd. Mm -hmm. This is the guy who sent me the pictures. He went back after his wife passed away because they that was their dream, was to go back and see the cherry blossoms. And then, unfortunately, his wife passed away before he had a chance to go. And then he went, and um, he had an incredibly spiritual experience with the cherry blossoms in Okinawa. Oh, I mean, I'd love to meet him. Um, obviously, if you hook us up, just well, he's in Hawaii moment, live, but... live on the radio. Oh, he's in Hawaii. He's but he'll right. give you some tips though, if you want some things to yeah, see. That sounds awesome. Um, but like, uh, yeah, no, Okinawa. I mean, like Japan, uh, like has a you know a complicated Japan as a as a nation state has a complicated relationship with, with obviously with all of the islands around it. Well, um, everything in between and, China and and Japan yeah, has got a complicated history, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And Korea as well. Like uh, Japan, you know, we often think of Japan as like um, the cutest little nation with cat cafes and maid cafes and neon lights and Pokemon and stuff. But it was a pretty brutal empire for on and off for a few centuries. Um, Japan, I know, also has like kind of continuing relationships um, with Brazil, Hawaii, uh, places like that, which uh, have a lot of like a, a huge Japanese diaspora living in them. Uh, Okinawa is interesting because like a lot of Okinawans, um, you know, won't really still to this day view themselves as Japanese. They'll view themselves as Okinawa uh, and as Okinawan people. And, uh, you know, if you go on Japan Reddit, 
um, and you, <laughs> as I did to research my trip to Okinawa, you'll find um, Okinawan people saying things like, why is it that mainlanders and, and like mainland Japan, why do they wear swimming trunks or like special clothes to go swimming? When I finish school, I just like run into the water in my school uniform. I mean, maybe it's because people in Tokyo love fashion. So they have to have a whole separate outfit to go swimming in. And people in Okinawa just don't understand this because the beach is so normal to them that they just run into the water with wearing whatever they're wearing. It really is its own place with its own culture. And, and, um, Obviously, it's got the wartime history as well, which lingers to this day with the army base there, which is also very contentious. Um, but it will be my first time going. Um, it is obviously like a very, like uh, you know, a very popular holiday place with uh, Japanese people, and um, you know, like I'm, I'm a bit of an old hipster. Like I'm kind of cynical about like uh, beaches and shorts and stuff like that. But um, I, my fiance dragged me to Hawaii like four years ago and I absolutely loved it. When I first went, I was like, Oh, Hawaii. That's for like basics and normies and stuff. And then I went <laughs> there and I, you know, I saw a sea turtle and I went swimming and it was awesome. And I, I came back from Hawaii and I were like, you know, I wasn't drinking for ages and I was eating better and like looking after my health. And so, Isn't and, that true? And, and, and Okinawa is obviously like, it's a blue zone. It's got like one of the highest rates of, um, people uh, over the age of 100 in the world so it's meant to be a healthy place so anyway yeah. i'm getting married isn't it funny how you go to those places though and it inspires life change like to take care of yourself differently like yeah i can live myself differently that's kind of amazing you've traveled a fair bit so i mean yeah. it is amazing when you go to a place and it just literally inspires you to like yeah i'm gonna live my life differently now yeah, it's weird because it's not an, an inspiration in, in like a like a New Year's resolution kind of way, you know. Like I swear I'm going to do this thing because I really want to, which is fine as well. It's more just like you come back and your body doesn't want it, you know. If, if you're living in Tokyo for a long time, you know, just the the grime of living in the city and like like I often refer to it as violence because I cycle a lot around the city. And when I get back into the my apartment, I've got like I call it. I mean, it's quite hyperbolic, but like the violence of the city on me, because you know it's the it's the trains, it's the noise, it's the sirens, it's the motorways, it's just everything is on you, you know. And and I I think you know when you're in that kind of city mentality, um, and Tokyo is an awesome city by the way. Like I love mm-hmm. Tokyo. I ain't dissing on Tokyo, but like you know you 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 know, like you drink a little bit more. You eat a little bit worse, you get a little bit lazier, and then when you get out and you go to a place like Okinawa or Hawaii or <laughs> uh, almost literally anywhere in Japan, I go to the mountains a lot. That kind of washes off you. And uh, like when I went to Hawaii, you know, I went for my, um, you know, my soon-to-be brother-in-law's wedding, and we stayed in this Airbnb next to a coffee farm, and it was very chill. People are so relaxed there and like, you know, everyone just goes surfing every day. We went to the big island to Kona and like when you came back, it was like, you know, I still had salt in my hair and you go back to Tokyo with salt in your hair and like you don't want to go into a 7-Eleven and buy like a whole bunch of craft beers and start drinking them in your little apartment. You know, life isn't really like that anymore for you. So. Yeah, you know, you're right. It, like places it was, you can go really do change you. Yeah, it was traffic for me. Every time that I've ever gone to Hawaii like that, it's I come back and I get in the car and you get stuck in traffic. And you're like, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? Um, yeah. Not to say there's no traffic in Hawaii because, you know, 
the H1 is like this incredibly jam-packed freeway that goes across Oahu, but at the same time, um, yeah, there's something that feels cool about it. Um, so what about you now? You're getting married and stuff like that. Why not New Zealand? Are you going to go back there? Oh, mate, you know, like we booked, a, we, we actually um, were planning a wedding for um, April 2020 in New Zealand. Um, can't Another imagine one. why that didn't happen. Yeah, well, oh, we are you, like, like, oh, you already <laughs> were. Sorry, I get it. We were, yeah, we were planning it. Um, we well, we want to have our main wedding in New Zealand, obviously. Like it's where I'm from. Me, uh, my partner is almost said her name on air. My partner is uh is half Japanese and half uh, New Zealand, and uh, we you know like a lot of her family is there, and um, you know we want to bring people over there. But New Zealand to date has had probably one of the uh, strictest entry policies in the world um, in terms of like, you know, even New Zealanders, myself trying to get home, you just can't, you know, uh, up to this point. They have this um, thing called MIQ, um, which is pretty much the government there uh, has got a whole bunch of hotels. It's booked out. There's X number of rooms. Uh, there's Y demand. And demand is about, you know, six or seven times you know, the, the availability, the supply of rooms and you have to get into a room and you have to quarantine for two weeks and you have to pay, unless you're going to stay for six months, you have to pay, um, you know, thousands of dollars to do it each. And, uh, just the, the combination of events of having to quarantine there for two weeks, getting a room to do it in, which is, you know, have to book months and months in advance, finding a rare flight to New Zealand, which uh, gets you, you know, to arrive in time to go to your MIQ room, paying for it, staying, and then like coming back and quarantine. It's just been absolutely impossible. So we, we, we can't go home and, uh, and like a lot of New Zealanders can't go home. And we obviously we can't book a wedding uh, considering New Zealand up to very recently had absolutely no COVID. The thing is that recently as of August, New Zealand no longer doesn't have COVID. Uh, New Zealand has a little bit of COVID-19, which is enough to um, freak the entire country out, maybe like 70 cases a day. And uh, I've been watching from afar as my, my homeland goes through a kind of pandemic adolescence you know, as, as you know, like all the hormones hit and the masks fall off and it's like, <laughs> oh my God, who am I? I thought I was COVID free. Maybe I'm not COVID free. I don't know. I don't know myself anymore. Um, and uh, they're trying to figure out what the new New Zealand is. And uh, the, the government has a fairly good idea, which is like what most of the world has been on board with for the last year, which is... Um, uh, you know, but well, well, since the vaccine anyway, which is get vaxxed ASAP, <laughs> wash your hands, wear a mask, stay yep. safe, look Slow after each other. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. And like I've been telling my friends back home this because they're, they're not used to living inside the pandemic. It's crazy. Like a lot of the news stories I've seen coming from New Zealand have been, you know, like June, July 2020 stuff of like the truth behind masks. Do they really work? And like, look, just honestly, wear a mask. Uh, wash your hands, get faxed, and, and you'll That's be fine. Just, you know. Um, but uh, now that COVID is in the country, um, you know, the, the government is kind of, you know, like loosening the um, straight jacket straps a little bit. And it looks like, um, just personally speaking, uh, that at the end of what well, we're Northern Hemisphere, right? So what's that for us? Uh, the end of winter 
um, next year, the start of spring for us next year, they're going to allow people who are double vaccinated to uh, skip MIQ, not go through MIQ, not go through this horrible, expensive containment uh, situation and just quarantine in their houses or quarantine uh, within a private situation like um, a lot of places in Canada have been doing for a long time. Um, which means I might finally get to um, sit in a car by the beach eating soggy fish and chips in the rain like I used to all the time once again. So I'm extremely excited about that. Oh, that's exciting. So next year for Chris, and then are you going to do the the pseudo wedding when you go back to New Zealand then? Other way around, mate. This is going to be the pseudo wedding. And Uh, uh, we're not really telling anybody apart from the fact that I just told all of Canada. Um, but we're, we're, we're going to make yeah <laughs> the secrets out. I did, I did ask, um, I did ask her before I went, can I talk about my wedding on the radio? And she was like, fine. Um, oh, but the, the New Zealand wedding is going to be like the main event. It's going to be like the main wedding, but, um, I don't know what the plan is going to be and wedding or no wedding. Um, I have like last time I saw my niece, she was five years old and that was five years ago. Wow. So. I know I, ha- I haven't been home in five years, so um, yeah, I just, wedding or no wedding, I'm 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 on a plane back to um, to watch the cricket, watch the rugby, eat some meckers, see my mates, drink a pint, hit the goon bag, and uh, just do um, other recreational New Zealand um, you know activities. It's Did you say meckers? Meckers, meckers, McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> of course. What was I thinking? Of course. <laughs> Oh, well, that's exciting stuff. All right. Um, yeah. I like this personal story here. I don't even know where you want to go next. You got a couple other things you wanted to talk about. So, oh, well, let's why don't you just take it away? Here. We got yeah, a let's see minutes. if I can segue. Um, also in the news for getting married. Um, I'm not in the oh. news, but do we know, get talk, invited, by the way? It. Since I'm going to interrupt you completely, I mean, do we get an invite? Who's invited? Well, Who? why not? We'll do the show from New Zealand. <laughs> can you bring the whole team? Can you bring want- um, Brendan and Rob? You guys want to go to New Zealand? I do, and I want to um, I, I want to like meet Are the sheep and the emus me? that you talk about. I just want to do the show from a hobbit hole. I know you oh. probably hate the fact that the first thing I want to do is do Lord of the Rings stuff in New Zealand, but come on. I want you know what? I I normally would hate it, but not for some reason, not from you, Ryan. I you know it, it's Aww. so expected that it's <laughs> kind of you endearing. Really appreciate actually. that. I uh, <laughs> I I want to eat, uh, meet the uh, obscure '80s new wave band Split Ends from uh, New Zealand. Yeah. Oh mate. Oh Neil Neil Finn and Tim Finn. Um Neil Finn ain't so obscure anymore. He might have found a little band, you might have heard of them called Crowded House. Mm, and yeah. uh he he's he's incredibly incredibly famous now. Um but uh, excellent taste in music there, Brendan. Um yeah, split ends is a good one. I might be playing some split ends at my wedding, but of course you're nice. you're all welcome uh to attend my uh twenty twenty two uh, and when I say you, if anyone's just tuning in, I don't mean you. Um, you're not welcome. <laughs> you're I not like inviting you. the country. <laughs> yeah, I like you guys. I'm talking specifically to, to Ryan, Shane, and Brendan, um, and Maddie. If Maddie's listening, of course Maddie's invited as well um, to come and uh, he's busy you know, selling some, guitars, play, lick some riffs. Yeah. Um, but anyway, here in Japan, Princess Mako, uh, the niece of the emperor, has just got married. We had a royal wedding here. Do you guys know anything about this at all? No, I don't know anything about the royal family in Japan at all. Uh, wait, why was he getting my headphones have fallen off? Uh, Ryan, you were nodding. Do you know a little bit? I, I do. I, I'm pretty interested. 
uh, Japanese history is probably one of my favorite things to read about. So the whole yeah. emperor and the royal family is pretty neat. All I know is that she is essentially marrying into a really good rom-com plot. Yeah, I mean, she, but actually, I think I think you uh, you're you're halfway right. She's marrying out of a really good rom-com plot because she's marrying a commoner, and by commoner, um, I mean a lawyer. Uh, oh. <laughs> she's marrying a lawyer, and um, that is just absolutely no good for the Japanese press. So, um, Kei Komuro is the name of uh, the the new guy who's who's married uh, Prentice Marco of the Japanese royal family, and he is a scandalous creature. He has a ponytail. Well, he had a ponytail. He moved to New York to study law. Um, and his mother had uh, some kind of debt issue that was not resolved where she got a gift from somebody but didn't believe it was a gift and something. Anyway, for three years now, the media here have just been like, like sticking the knife in. Uh, Tike Komuro, like the poor bloody guy, has gone through, and and, and Princess Marco as well. Um, he is not fit of a royal princess, which of course puts like an incredible onus and and a lot of pressure on her for the expectations that she has to deliver. These impossible expectations um, of being a princess in Japan. Also, it's a male only order of succession to the throne, so she can't be empress at all. Any, ever like it's only males that can, that can be the, the the ruler of Japan. So what has effectively happened is that three years ago, they got engaged. Kay went to uh, New York to study law. They haven't seen each other in three years, and then finally, and they got been engaged this whole time. Finally, last month, he returns to Japan, and they got married this week. Um, he did grow a ponytail. Uh, while he was in New York, which the Japanese press gave him hell for. And to be perfectly honest, I'm kind of on their side. Like, I've had long hair for a long time now, and not once have I ever considered bunching it up and, and tying it in a little dandy ponytail behind my head. I'm not going to do it. I don't think anybody should do it. And that's gender neutral. I think all ponytails are terrible, but that's just me. But, you know, they also gave him hell for wearing a pinstripe suit at his wedding. You know, they just don't like this guy because he is a commoner. But she is marrying out of the royal family by marrying Kei Komuro. And hmm. usually there's like a kind of like a, a royal family severance package <laughs> where she gets like um, <laughs> like four, like a golden hat, no, like $400,000 or something like that for leaving the royal family. She's like, nah, not taking it. Wow. Um, they 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 kind of comparing her her to like Meghan Merkel and like uh, Prince Harry, um, but I think it's slightly different because she has completely left the family. Like her family waved her goodbye, um, and then this poor couple they have to go and and, and face uh, the media after their their um, their very like subdued wedding, which is very uh, lacking in pomp. And very lacking in, or I guess you could say, like celebrational ceremony and stuff like that. And they have to come out in front of the media and say, "We love each other. Please leave us alone now." <laughs> like, I think he looks good. Just the ponytail. People, I think it's good for What's him. That shame? The ponytail looks good. You know what? It does work for him. Um, if if anyone wants to Google, not while you're driving, uh, K Komuro. That's K E I space K O M U R R M U R O. And uh, look at his ponytail. It is an 
it, I, I can't lie. You're quite right. It is a very good ponytail. Yeah. Um, uh, but my partner said about Princess Marco, because they're going to go back to New York together now, she, hope, she wishes her well, and she hopes that she can wear whatever the hell she wants now. Because it's That's just cool. been very, like, Japanese-style conservative dread, pastels, like, high neck, like, like you know, like, long sleeves, long, like, very, very unshiny, like, very, to be honest, like, perfectly unflattering clothing. And uh, I, I really want, I wish Princess Marco as well to, to um, live her best life, be her best self, and just start vibing. Go to New York and start vibing and leave all these Japanese blues behind you. I love it. It's a great story. Um, maybe they'll come show up in Okinawa to see you guys off just because they can support you. I would love that. You. Okay, okay, yeah. Uh, Princess Marco and Kate Komodo, you're also invited along with Ryan Chain and Brendan to my wedding there it and is. to Okinawa. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Christopher Gilbert, so you will be away uh, on your honeymoon so you can get married after. That's not weird. Um, yeah. And we look forward to hearing um, how what you think of Okinawa when you come back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's my pre-honeymoon, so let's call it a, uh, a pre-honeymoon. A pre-honeymoon. Okay, so Christopher Gilbert yeah, and his uh, pending pre-honeymoon coming up here next. Good luck, buddy. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. This is The Shift Podcast. All right, I'm going to share a bit of a story that takes us deep into uh, a store and a stuffed animal. I was a single dad, and uh, as a single dad, a divorced dad, I should say, I, um, you know, learning the ropes of how to uh, deal with children is is very, very difficult. And what it took me to was a store and some children that I could not get a handle on that day. I was at the end of my rope. I was done. And then there was a stuffed animal shaped like an elephant. That stuffed animal shaped like an elephant uh, had a massive impact on my parenting. And the reason why it did was because my kids fell in love with animals. That stuffed animal got a name. Mr. Wrinkles became his name. And Mr. Wrinkles, uh, which was great because I said to the kids, I said, so what do you want to name them? And they both said it at the same time, unprepared, uh, disorganized, just on cue. They both said Mr. Wrinkles. And so it was meant to be. It was kismet. And we took that and that elephant, my son packed it around. My son is six foot five. He's 16 years old now, and Mr. Wrinkles does sit around the house, but he got packed around pretty much until my giant son was 15 and has become a very special uh, piece of my life. That little stuffed elephant has led us to pictures of elephants on the wall on canvas. It has led us to looking up all kinds of different reserves that protect elephants around the world. What can we do to uh, take care of that piece? It has educated us. Robert Pringle is an ecology evolution guy. A biology and evolution guy. And uh, around elephants, things have started to change. And so I was very excited to have the opportunity to talk to Mr. Pringle and find out what is going on with these elephants because they matter to me. A strange arrival at an elephant, Robert, but here we are. And um, I guess inspiration comes in strange places. Before we get started, I have two questions. Which part of Mr. Wrinkles was wrinkly? His face. Well, in the beginning, his face... Uh, in his trunk, and then as he got older and his stuffing became more and more flat and terrible, his whole body, he just became So just he like, kind of evolved. He evolved. That's a great point. And did, did he have tusks? Uh, he does. Little tusks. All right. Okay. So, Very cool. Tell us what you do and, um, and let us 
and let us understand where the the state of maybe elephants today and then how elephants are clearly changing under threat. Yeah, so I'm a I'm an ecologist, which means that I study interactions between species in in nature and how that shapes the world around us. And often those are interactions between different species of wild animals. So mm-hmm. between, for example, elephants and plants. But increasingly, a big part of our work is to try to understand how humans are influencing other species. And that's a species interaction, too. You know, humans humans interact. Uh, we don't typically think of ourselves as part, uh, part of the natural world necessarily, but we are, and we're having a, a huge impact. Um, and, you know, the state of elephants in the world is not so great. Uh, on the whole, globally speaking, um, as very large animals, and like other very large animals, they require a lot of space, and they don't play well, for the most part, with people trying to do agriculture or people trying to, you know, live settled lives in their vicinity because they they can destroy crops, they can destroy livelihoods, and and they can kill people. Um, not that they you know that, that that's something that they want to do necessarily but human wildlife conflict is a big part of um the you know the the issue that has to be addressed in places where people are trying to conserve elephants they, they tend to go and do what they want hey they're big uh, it's hard to stop them you know it's it's surprisingly difficult from to stop them from doing what they want because they're also smart and there's there's actually a whole field of research of people trying to figure out strategies for how to uh, humanely prevent the kind of human wildlife conflict that can become a major conservation concern. Because you can easily put yourself in the shoes of, of a subsistence farmer or small scale cultivator uh, who whose livelihood and whose family's livelihood depends on the crops that you're growing in your plot. And an elephant can destroy that in a single night trample it and and eat a lot of it up and that happens around the the boundaries of protected areas in africa and also in asia um wherever elephants are conserved conserved so there's a lot of people trying to figure out you know how do we stop them from doing this everything from uh beehives because elephants uh, don't get along with bees to electric fencing to um, chili peppers uh to fireworks all kinds of creative strategies to try to mitigate that human wildlife conflict uh, it's but, amazing to think that a bumblebee scares a scares such a big elephant right it's like well, a, it's not just one it's not just the one bee it's a lot <laughs> it's of bees the, it, it's, it's a lot of bees like those old um, cartoons that we would see when a, a an elephant would see a mouse and go running right yeah kind of like that <laughs> i mean and, and elephants have very they're they have very thick hides but very sensitive um you know, noses. So the mucosa in the trunk, for example, uh, is a very sensitive area and, uh, and insects can, can actually bother them. But the main, you know, so human wildlife conflict is one issue, but then there's this other thing that has been a part of the human elephant interaction for centuries, if not millennia, is uh, that elephants have these long teeth uh, called tusks that are made of ivory that people have all kinds of uh, uses for, have had all kinds of uses for and, and desire for. And hunting of elephants for ivory is 
um, you know, it's been going on for a really long time, um, you know, even before we have historical records. And that has left a very strong mark on both the number of elephants that still exist, which is declining in most most places throughout Africa and Asia where those elephants still occur, uh, and on, as we show in a recent study, the actual anatomy of the animals which are evolving in response to that pressure. Well, such is uh, Mother Nature, if you will. Uh, that we've seen over the course of time. And we often look at these snapshots of 10 years, 20 years as being, you know, oh, this is real. It happens in 10 years all around all kinds of ecological things in the world. We, it is a good reminder when we look at thousands or hundreds of years, maybe even thousands, uh, that, you know, these things take time, but then things do start to adjust. What's the impact of elephants without tusks? Well, it's not entirely clear. Um, People have known that, so there is a, you know, going back even to the, you know, the hunter, the accounts of hunters who traveled to Africa to, to shoot elephants for ivory and as trophies in the 1800s, you would, you could read about them encountering elephants with the occasional elephant without tusks. And these days in a, in a population where that's what, you know, where conservation is, um, is well managed and there's not a lot of of hunting the frequency of this trait tuskless tusklessness is pretty low you know one two three four percent um but there are places and people have known this for a while where and especially places where the poaching for ivory has been very intense where you have start to get higher frequencies of tuskless animals in the population and it's it's there's, so there's enough research that's been done that we know about that but there has not been a lot of research done on what that actually means for the animals or even to conclusively prove the connection between the ivory hunting on the one hand and the the change in the frequency of this trait um so that's what we were interested in when we when we started this study. So trying to trying to put some hard hard numbers and evidence behind the relationship between the human activity and the elephant response, and also to try to look try to get some insight into what is the genetic basis for this right. this trait. So as a as a professor, I guess if you're going to study you know evolutionary biology. I mean, you work at Princeton, so you guys take on real tangible things. This must be the crossroads of evolution, isn't it, right? When you, the ongoing sort of nature-nurture scenario, when you have elephants that are getting killed for ivory, and then now all of a sudden elephants are starting to, you know, change a little bit and not have ivory. Sort of sustainability uh, issue uh, that they're creating on their or solving on their own. But it's not like someone's taking a poster and saying, hey, by the way, Mr. Elephant Man, Mr. Wrinkles, don't grow tusks or else you could die. So that must be the crossroads of evolution in your study anyway. Is how in the world do they do that? Yeah, so that's a great point. I mean, and, and so I think it's important to keep in mind sort of what, what evolution is, because I think that's uh, – we all have a kind of a, you know, a, a – a sense, but but the, really the strict definition is the change in the frequency of a heritable trait in a population through time. 
Um, and, you know, so that is something that can actually happen very fast. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, that they're, you know, changing into new species before our eyes. Um, but it does mean that, that, you know, the, if you put a very strong pressure, such as, you know, intensive poaching, um, that you can get a, a very rapid change in the, in the frequency of a trait and, and that that's evolution. I think it's important to emphasize that this is not a solution Right. So, sorry, I, I should actually back up a little bit to, to get at, at the question you asked. Um, at some point, somewhere in deep unrecorded history, an elephant had a mutation or a series of mutations that resulted in their not being able to produce tusks. And that, that trait hung around. That animal was otherwise, you know, a viable animal that could grow up and reproduce and produce offspring that might also have been tussless. So there was some chance event, mutation or mutations in the genome that happened a long time ago. And what the human activity, the, the harvesting, the hunting for ivory is doing is selecting, it's creating a selective pressure on that trait. So that if you're an elephant that happens to be tussless in a period when people are killing a lot of elephants to try to get their tusks, you're much more likely to survive and right. leave offspring than those who aren't and, and then those who do, than the ones that do have tusks. So that's the, the basic, you know, mechanism of how this arises. The reason it's not a clear cut. I mean, I think it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not, there are some bright spots to this story that maybe we'll get to in the course of the conversation, but it's, this is not a, um, uh, a solution for elephants. It's not, it's not their escape plan necessarily. And the reason for that is kind of a peculiar aspect of the, of the inheritance process that is, was uncovered in the study that we did, which is that this is a trait that is linked to mutations on the X chromosome. And so that's a sex chromosome. Females have two copies of it. Males have only one copy and it's a dominant thing. So if, if you're a female, um, and you have one copy of this mutated chromosome, you're going to have the tussless trait. If you're a male, for reasons that we don't fully understand, you don't make it. So males that inherit this, the this mutation or set of mutations don't survive, they're not viable. And so you do not, we do not see tuskless males. And this is true throughout Africa. It's a female specific trait, which is kind of unusual in terms of, you know, how genetics works. We don't often see traits that have this kind of inheritance pattern. But what it means is that you'll never get, at least according to what, what, what we understand at the moment, you're never going to get a population of elephants that becomes completely tuskless and therefore is able to, you know, avoid ivory poaching. Yeah. Precisely because they're the males are always going to have to keep that you know that that unaffected uh, version of the of the um, of the genes is going to stick around because males need to have that in order to survive. Safe to say, kind of like not everybody's going to be tall, even if it's the dominant gene. You, every now and then, you're going to get a short person, or not everyone's going to be a brunette if it's the dominant gene. Every now and then, you're going to get a redhead, regardless. 
Yeah, but but even more so, it would be like if 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 brunette males are impossible. Uh, not everyone is is going to be a brunette because because whatever genes determine hair hair, hair color um, are you know are going to be um, preserved right like the non brunette version of the gene if this makes sense um, yeah it does is going to be preserved in in the males of the population. Makes sense. Although there are probably a lot of uh, partners out there that are saying, oh, I have a brunette male that cannot be tolerated and will not make it. <laughs> okay, so what's the benefit of this? I mean, we see it as an incidental benefit around the ivory trade, which is in many places now almost illegal, um, but it's not solved yet. So is there a real benefit to this? Is this a happy accident that leads us to a solution for a problem we couldn't figure out as humans? I don't know. Um, I, I, I guess I don't have a a view of it as in terms of whether it's it's happy or sad but just the way nature is working and again i don't really think it's solving it's solving the problem because you can't as as far as we understand the genetics it, it's not going to be possible to basically have this completely tuskless population that would be able to avoid um ivory poaching because you're only ever going to get that in females so you may have a lot of tuskless females running around but the males are still going to have tusks and they're therefore still going to be susceptible to poaching um and so it's it's not the it's not the sort of the evolutionary response that necessarily is going to kind of um help elephants climb their way out of this this problem that we can't solve for ourselves but i think the the bright spot in this story is that um there are a lot of places, you know, thanks to people like you and other people who care about the survival of this species. Um, and, you know, and, and, and they are, they are legion because it's, it's a, such a charismatic, you know, Mr. Wrinkles is a great example uh, of how charismatic the species is and how instinctively humans react to elephants. Um, there are a lot of places where elephant numbers are increasing. So it's, you have to think about it, you know, as sort of a, a big map. And in the, in the big picture, um, the threats to elephants are, are very profound. And uh, a lot of populations are decreasing, especially where political situations are unstable in, in, in countries and where conservation measures aren't very effective. Um, but there are places where elephant elephant numbers are increasing. And, the place where we worked, Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, is one of those places where um, the, the, the intense poaching that happened that led to this change, this increase in uh, the number of tuskless female elephants, you know, that, that, was, that occurred during a, a period of intense civil war in Mozambique in the 1970s and 80s. Since about, you know, since the first part of this century, since about 2004, um, elephant numbers have been steadily increasing in this park. And we, what we found is that the, the number of Tuscus elephants born in the generation after the war is lower than that in the generation that preceded them. And what we expect is that the you know, over time with continued protection of this population, um, the the numbers are going to increase and and the frequency of tussinessness is going to go down. 
do we end up with two kinds of two different breeds of elephants in this? No, not really. Um, because again, there's there, it's, uh, it's still something that can only happen in females as far as we know. So as long as those females are, are, you know, breeding with males, which they have to do, um, you're never going to get a separation of these into, into two different breeds. It's all the same lineage just happening within the same population. Mm, it's interesting stuff. Now you have a fascination with conservation in general. Um, what can we do as uh, normal people that don't understand some of the big words, but love animals, whether it's, you know, birds or uh, these big buggers, uh, you know, like the elephants, like I do. Um, what, what do you recommend? I mean, you've done an entire education being a professor at, at Princeton around this, but there are people who love them and don't necessarily need to do it as a job. What what can we do, Robert, to to become more aware and get more active in this community uh, in general? Because the animals are special, man. Um, and science can only recreate so much down the road, and and so these ones are pretty important. There's yeah, no, thanks for that question. There's a lot. There's a lot of things. I mean, number number one on the list is don't buy any products with ivory in them. But hopefully that goes without saying. That's a that's a good uh, tip. As you, said, <laughs> as you said, it's 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 uh, illegal in Canada and the U.S. Um, and many other countries as well. But beyond that, uh, there are a lot of organizations doing good work um you know and that both in north america and those that are involved in 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 the places where wild elephants still exist zoos believe it or not uh are you know people may, may may have complicated feelings about what it means to keep elephants in zoos but zoos are major car conservation partners and they they play a big role in you know channeling revenues to um conservation efforts abroad and in um you know in in their own captive breeding programs so support your local zoo i would say is one thing um take take your kids to the zoo and see some elephants um and then of course there's there's a, a large number of charities that are exclusively dedicated to working to protect elephants. And one of the two of the co-authors on our study work for a conservation NGO called Elephant Voices based in San Francisco in the United States, but they work in Kenya and in Mozambique and elsewhere. And, um, you know, um, anybody who's in a position to make charitable donation could look for for um, conservation organizations that work on elephants. And I think I would say, I guess the last thing is for those, those few people who are, you know, have the means to, to be able to go see a a wild elephant. Um, It's, it's an experience that you, you know, no one will ever forget. And that's what got me, you know, your, my, my version of your Mr. Wrinkle story, you know, I, I actually (laughs) growing up, my biggest interest in the animal world was snakes. I thought they were the, the coolest thing. And, and that sort of was my, my entree into biology as a, as a career. But I, I first visited Africa and Kenya in 2003 and, and saw some of these animals in their natural habitat. And that is just something that an experience that never goes away. And, you know, when you do visit um, 
these places and you go on safari, um, that is, you know, uh, that is a, a, a major factor that helps sustain conservation because uh, the budgets for conservation are, stem from the revenues that come into these mostly poor countries where uh, where elephants still exist. So, you know, if that's for anybody for whom that's an option, it's a it's a good one. But it's obviously not something that everyone gets a chance to do. I must admit, I have flown all the way to Washington, D.C. to go to the Smithsonian's National Zoo to see Spike, who was the elephant here in Calgary. And uh, watching Spike toss a tractor tire like it's a toy is an amazing experience. I have a video somewhere. I'll try to dig it, dig it up. So I would love to keep this conversation going. It's fantastic. So thank you very much for the time. Robert Pringle is at Princeton. He is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and so much more. Um, thanks for sharing your elephant nerdiness and this storyline. Yeah. I think it's really cool. I thanks a lot it. for having me on, Shane. I appreciate it. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. I am curious where a conversation about the spooky things that go bump in the night intersect with a computer scientist. I have a sneaking suspicion someone's going to try to debunk some of my favorite stories. I have a story for you, Greg Fish. And um, unfortunately, I fear that you might be right. When I share you my story, but let's establish the article first. It's worldofweirdthings.com for the blog and the podcast. Uh, how are you, Fishy? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm excited to talk about this little topic of things going bump in the night. You declare that it's not, um, it's not ghosties at all. Science declares I'm merely repeating. Oh, dear. See? Computer scientists right here. <laughs> I love it. All right. So where are we going with this story? What do you have in your mind? So what I have on my mind is that across the world, there's stories of people being visited by ghosts, by demons while they're sleeping, and they wake up, and they see these strange shapes, and these strange people, and these strange entities, and there are hundreds if not thousands of years of folklore talking about fairly consistent things that people report happening to this day and scientists trying to figure out well what the heck are all these people seeing and coming to a conclusion that a well not super common but common enough sleep disorder could actually explain the vast majority of all these cases okay when the call is coming from inside the house, things going bump in the night, what is this condition that um, talks about, well, first of all, let's talk about the bumps in the night, actually. What kind of bumps in the night do you think of yourself when you think of this? Does it happen to you? Oh, yeah, it's definitely happened to me. Um, sometimes you see strange shapes that are not really supposed to be there and you don't know what they are as you're waking up. Sometimes you wake up and you feel like there's something in the room with you and you look around and you don't see anything at first and then you see a figure. Sometimes it's a shadowy figure. Sometimes it's a figure of a person who you've never seen before and it looks like a person 
but not exactly. Some features may be missing. Some features may be strange and grotesque and elongated or shriveled in ways that there aren't supposed to be. Um, there's also tales of aliens standing over people. Um, and this is actually fairly uh, restricted to North America, specifically United States, where this is common folklore. Um, so one of the things that scientists have said, well, what causes that is a disorder called sleep paralysis. This is okay. essentially, this this is what happens when you are not quite awake, but not exactly asleep. So when someone is sleeping, their body is paralyzed, so they don't really act out their dreams. Sleepwalkers have that mechanism fail, so they actually are getting up and acting out their dreams and, and doing things as if they're actually awake. Uh, people who have sleep paralysis have the opposite. The, that, that drive to paralyze the body is very strong, and they're shifting between REM sleep and wakefulness, but they're not quite out of that sleep, and they can't move. But because they can't move, their brain starts firing abnormally, and some of the parts of the brain that get disturbed are parts that are responsible for trying to get a sense of where you are and whether you're alone, kind of just trying to get an inventory of your senses. Uh, and a lot of times there's misfires to think that there's somebody in the room with you. And because you're uncomfortable, you want to move, but you can't. You're anxious. Your mind starts filling in some very, very nasty things in the mm -hmm. blanks. And you end up with these bizarre entities and a lot of them may be consistent because they're based on folklore that you've been exposed to horror movies that you've seen you know the uh, i mentioned aliens and 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 why they're a part of folklore in certain countries and in areas where people talk a lot about oh you know i've been i was, I was visited by aliens or i've seen aliens they will see shapes that are kind of alien alien-esque um so it, it it tends to fit the patterns extremely well um, I've had a couple of incidents where I woke up and I thought that there was somebody in the room with me and some weird moving shapes uh, here and there. And a couple of experiences, a kind of a very similar out of body experience where all of a sudden I woke up and it was like I, I was looking at myself. Um, well, I was looking at myself on my bed, but hovering above myself. And, mm -hmm. and it happens. It's actually relatively common that people have at least a couple of those experiences in their lifetimes because there's always some sort of biological misfire that happens and then for some people it's a chronic problem uh, it requires medication it requires some sort of meditation it requires a change in their routine um, and in some cases it can actually be hereditary so some of the stories about ghosts, ghosts haunting entire generations of a family may actually very much come from the fact that you know their family has this shared story about this entity supposedly haunting them they pass on the sleep disorder through their genetics and the story just kind of keeps fulfilling itself as people keep experiencing the sleep disorder okay so for me have you ever had that moment where you you're sleeping but you're trying to wake up your brain's like come on man you gotta wake up and you can just feel yourself kind of get sucked out of this hole of comfort and awesomeness and it feels like you're kind of like getting like a magnet just kind of sucking you out of this deep sleep because you're somehow trying to wake up. Have you ever had that experience, like maybe a really great nap or middle of the night sleep? Has that ever happened to you? Oh, yeah. It happens to me. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so there was a season where I had all kinds of weird things happen in my house. One of them was um, I didn't have my big dogs anymore. 
But my big dogs used to be big enough that they would um, stand and they would put their, their mouth and their teeth on the doorknob and turn the doorknob. We would see um, teeth marks on the doorknob because they would bite it and they would dent it. And so in the middle of the night, I would hear rattle, rattle, rattle at the door of the master bedroom. And it kind of sucked me out of that deep sleep. And I'd be like, what's going on? I'd look around the room and I'd hear, I would sit up, rattle, rattle, rattle. And I thought, okay, well, it's either a ghost or it's my son, right? Like, you need to go to bed. It's middle of the night. Come on, boy, kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so then I would go and I would, um, I go open the door. There's no lights on. There's no one there. I'm like, oh, you know, he's sneaky. He's fast. He's back to bed. So I go to my son's door and open his door and he's sound asleep. And that's where my storyline was, okay, because this used to happen. The dogs used to rattle the doorknobs when they wanted to get out. Um, that I'm like, is there like a ghost? But it was again and again and again, night after night after night. And then finally it stopped. But there was nobody ever trying to come into the room and like in real life. So that was my experience that came to mind when you talked about this. Your implication is that that was all happening in my imagination? Not, well, if it happens once or twice, I can totally see that. But if it happened for an extended period of time, then, you know, I'd need a lot more, I'd need a lot more data. I, I don't know if you can necessarily say you would experience the same thing night after night after night. Like there's, uh, was there, there, there would nights, be limitations. So. I'm okay. sorry? It was like a handful of nights. It wasn't like, a, you know, ongoing for a year. So, I mean, that's where it, it does come to mind. Like, well, okay, well, maybe I did dream it. I was very doubtful that it was happening, but it was so realistic that it was happening, that there's no way possible. that it, I didn't but have a dog. Could, My boy there was could also be There could also be something that, that could be disturbing the door as well, because um, I can tell you uh, uh, another story that, that kind of fits in that mold and doesn't have the explanation of sleep paralysis. Um, okay. I was working really late one night, and I saw a shadow running along the ground. And I was very spooked by it, because it's like, it looked like, for a second, it was just very fast. And I'm like, am I hallucinating or something? Maybe I'm just tired. I need to go to bed. And then the next night, I'm again, I'm working late on some article. And, and I see that shadow again. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell is going on. I'm very confused. Um, and then I actually, and I was living in an apartment complex at the time. And I talked to the apartment complex. Like, hey, can you guys like check for pests or something? I don't know what's going on. Um, and then finally, they looked and they said, hey, there's a mouse in your fireplace. So what I was actually seeing was the mouse darting back and forth. And because I was tired and I was sleepy and I probably should have gone to bed, it was registering as almost like a dream. I didn't realize it was like an actual living creature. So we caught the mouse, we got rid of it, and the shadow went away. So all sorts of things can happen, especially when we're tired. Our mind already takes a lot of shortcuts when we're awake. But then when we're sleepy or when our mind isn't completely alert, um, it gets really lazy and we can fill in uh, we can fill in the blanks with all sorts of weird thoughts and ideas and feelings and visions and hallucinations. It's it's not it's not abnormal and it doesn't necessarily mean that like we're sick or there's a problem with us. It just means we're tired and we probably just need, you know, a a different bedtime or we need uh or we need to drink some you know nice 
warm tea with honey before we go to bed and just like really relax or or put on like a nice noise machine just just really kind of get get a better handle on our sleep that's really that's really what it means 999,000 times out of a million okay so i've had experience when i've walked into a room and my soulful experience is like off the charts you know, goosebumps on one arm da 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 that is not this um this is your brain filling in gaps um, to, I, I see, I hear the, uh, the distinctness between the two of them. Now, one thing that did just happen to me tonight. So, um, my kids are here, right? They, my kids live with me. Um, uh, my daughter's here full time. My son's here about half time. And so, you know, they're big. They come up the stairs. Um, there's a bunch of brain science that says that your brain actually only looks at what you're looking at and that your brain fills in the rest of the images around it. It's like when you walk in a room for the first time, and you're like, oh, wow, and you look around at everything, and your brain starts to fill in all the images around it to save time, save brain power. Like, so I look, I'm looking at Greg Fish on our Zoom call right now. I can tell he's wearing a brown shirt and everything else. But everything that's happening in the peripheral, the science asserts that that's being filled in from memory. It's not really observing the peripherals. Here's what I have sitting on my, my, um, if you can see that fish with my curtains in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a, it's a water bottle that's got a screw top, like a, right? Water bottle. Anyway, mm -hmm. the top was just sitting up like this and it was sitting to my right. To my right is the staircase. And twice tonight, I thought I saw a figure coming up the stairs. In my peripheral, it looked like a body, like a human. Looked at it twice. I was like, oh, that's weird. Oh, that's weird. I wonder if something's going on. In this conversation, what I did was I put the, put the top down. So the top's not standing up anymore. So it doesn't look like a head in my peripheral. Right. So is that the kind of stuff that you're saying is that, you know, something might be going on in your brains, basically just filling in the blanks and tricking us? Yep. That's exactly what I'm saying. For example, my shirt is actually yellow, not brown. Oh. So oh. there's another example of that. <laughs> okay. Wait a second. We need a team vote. Ryan, is this yellow and brown? What is going on here with this shirt? I say like it's brown on here and then it looks like a light tan here. <laughs> you know I'm you know I'm colorblind, right? Okay. <laughs> that uh, but Brandon? that is yellow. That is 100% yellow. Um, no, I I thought it was yellow from the whole time like when yeah. Fish signed on to the Zoom call. I was like, "Oh, look That's at that yellow. yellow shirt. I think I have one very similar." That was my initial this, thought when I saw him. This might be a good see, time to see put on exactly glasses. exactly what I'm talking about. We get we get lazy. We get lazy. I still think Just it's the first tan. thing that we see we go with. I think it's tan. Maybe my color balance is off of my monitor or something weird. I'm going to blame the monitor. Blame the science. I'm not blaming my brain. All right. Okay. So there you go. Our brains are fooling us. Halloween doesn't matter. It's our brain taking shortcuts. Well, yes, absolutely. That said, though, Halloween is awesome because it does give our brains the outlet to be creative and kind of play with the things that scare us. Because, see, here's kind of like my favorite thing about Halloween. Um now, I didn't know about Halloween until I came to the United States. So that was a very interesting, uh, that was a very interesting positive discovery for me. Well, for those who are just um, being introduced to you, just quickly say where you came from. Oh, well, I'm actually originally from Ukraine. So uh, now you know. You, <laughs> there you go. Halloween, not, a, not really an Eastern European holiday. So when I came to the United <laughs> States, I learned about Halloween. And I thought that this is the best thing ever because... Fear is kind of like a natural response to keep us safe. Anything that seems dangerous, anything that seems suspicious, our mind fills into all sorts of terrible details and we want to get away from it and we want to stay safe. But at the same time, 
Halloween gives us that license to play with it a little bit and explore it and try and present some of our fears in maybe an entertaining way or have that experience of we want to get scared. We want to get that adrenaline rush from being scared, but we're still in a safe environment and we have a season where we can just really kind of enjoy um, playing around with our with the darkest parts of our imagination. Um, and I think that's actually a, a really a really good thing for us long term because having that understanding that a lot of our fears aren't real, and a lot of the things that are really dangerous to us are much more man- mundane, traffic accidents, pandemics, um, things, computer viruses, things that things that actually will will hurt us or or will do damage to us are are not really monsters that will lunge at us. It, it gives us that that license to well, let's imagine if those monsters were real. Let's watch some horror movies and let's you know play around with costumes and just uh, kind of enjoy being scared for the sake of being scared for an adrenaline rush. So I I, I think that's actually that's actually a great idea for that's us to have that kind of fear. holiday. Well, fear would be one of those conversations we could talk about that for hours. Fish. I mean, fear is the fundamental human existence right? It fundamentally is the human existence. And fear is never present. That's another thing, right? Fear typically is never present. It's always a story from the past projected on something that may or may not happen in the future. Like usually courage becomes the presence in fear, right? When when fear happens, you hear these stories about, well, we had the story on the shift earlier about the guys on the West Coast uh, who saved people who fell in a river by taking off their turbans and using those as sort of as a, a rope to pull them out. That's the difference, right? Fear is uh, the past. This is my deeply philosophical self. Fear is the past, a story from the past, projected on uh, uh, an outcome of the future. So your brain is telling you, creating this scenario so you don't die today. What courage becomes is actually just the presence of that moment. And usually um, presence means that somebody's going to react in some way. You run away, you do whatever. And it's a really, really cool philosophy to look at fear from the place of time. Well, I mean... Bravery is really doesn't mean that you're not afraid either. It just means right. that you can overcome that fear. Yeah, um, you're acting in fear. Yeah, actually, in fact, and, you and, can't and, have bra- you can't have bravery unless fear is present, right? Yeah, I would absolutely say so. Otherwise, you're just acting. But right. it, again, and I think that that's being able to confront and talk through things that generate fear for us. Things like sleep paralysis. Things like letting our letting our brain trick us things like taking cognitive shortcuts, things like believing things that we that sound true, that sound like they could be real and they could be out to get us when they're really not. Um, all of these things are, are can become problems, but exploring them and, and, and talking through them and realizing that pretty much all of them are not actually going to hurt us, I think that's an important exercise that, that we need to do every once in a while. I'm going to quote Dr. Jody Carrington, who's a child psychologist, but does a ton of public speaking. And Jody says this, Greg, I think you'll like it. Name it to tame it. And that's what you do with fear. When you have an experience of fear, you have to name it in order to tame it. You have to acknowledge that it exists first, and then you can dig into why it's there. And to your point about all of these things, I think that's a great description of how you can deal with it once it comes up, your brain's only job 
in this world is don't die today. That's your brain's only job. We use it for other things, but naturally speaking, your brain's only job is don't die today. It's not I'm hungry. What is I'm hungry? Give me nourishment so I don't die today, right? So uh, that's your brain's job. So your brain's going to lie to us all the time and say don't die today. See, I wish I knew name it to tame. I could have saved myself a lot of words. <laughs> it's a good statement though, isn't it? I mean, it's perfect. Uh, yeah. And if you, if you are going through fearful things, let's offer this back to the shift heads here. If you are going through fearful things, it's almost like I love this conversation. Thanks, Greg, for bringing it up. If you can just acknowledge that it's there. You can usually actually just set it aside. You might not be able to let go of it. You might not be able to move on yet. But if you could just acknowledge it, you can, in some cases, set it aside. Back to the story about, you know, Greg uh, seeing things, uh, the shadows. You know, if you don't acknowledge the fact that there's a shadow, right, then um, you, you're you just going to keep seeing the shadow and the moving thing. And the the courage, there is courage in going to the landlord and saying, hey, can you look for, like, rodents or whatever? Because the fear of looking bad, right, and looking like a dum-dum, um, is also present in that. So we often don't tell other people when we see scary things. Yeah, and you're you're absolutely right. It the best way you can. That's the best way you can deal with them. Don't be don't be afraid to deal with them. Mm. What if there's a, you know, there's a there's a reason why, uh, you know, I, I'll I'll work my way back into Dune because that's you know the hottest thing in the movies now. There's a reason why they say fear is the mind killer. That's yeah. that's exactly what that's exactly what Frank Herbert meant. Yeah, it is. Deeply philosophical conversation. Worldofweirdthings.com. Greg Fish, we have more to talk about. We'll have to save it, Greg, because that was just amazing. Um I will fear is one of the most fundamental pieces of my writing. Um because it is the most fundamental piece of living. And it's a strange place to accept, but it truly, truly is. So if you're going through stuff and you feel like your mind is playing games with you, name it to tame it. And then go to worldofweirdthings.com and read this article because Greg Fish will will uh, help you understand some of those things that go bump in the night. The article is called, When the Call is Coming from Inside the House. By the way, the first picture is probably pretty scary. Don't look at it at nighttime. <laughs> Your fear will kick in. Thanks, Fish. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.